Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. If, if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open up to Psalm 46, the 46th Psalm. We're going to be looking at that and walking through that uh, tonight. We're going to talk about trouble. Uh, the Psalm is all about trouble, um, small troubles, big troubles. It's one of the few things in life that is a, a guarantee that we will all certainly face. Many of you may be facing trouble right now, uh, broken bodies, broken relationships, uh, broken promises. You know, behind every Instagram filter, behind every gym routine, behind every career move is a person who is just one nanosecond away from insurmountable trouble. I I have five girls, as Ali mentioned. Uh, They know about trouble. Uh, Especially they know about getting in trouble, uh, getting each other in trouble. It's a favorite pastime at my house. Uh, My oldest daughter, when she was one, um, which was a while ago, um, she, one thing she loved doing early on was pressing the open and close button on our DVD player. Um, this was before Netflix, scary times. Um, and she did it enough times that it actually broke the machine. It was one of the very first things she got in trouble for. And uh, she, she, it was a, a very memorable, uh, impacting experience for her, such that for the next like two years, every time she got in trouble for anything, she had this little script in her mind, Mommy, sorry, touch buttons, time out. And she would go and put herself in time out. She knew, learned at an early age about trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, is the words of Jesus. Um, I don't know, when you think about, if you were to cycle through the promises of God that you may have uh, studied or memorized. I don't know if that one is one of the first ones that pops into your head, but it is a promise. In this world, you will have trouble. And if you've never actually looked at those words that are recorded for us in John 16, you might wonder, who was Jesus talking to when he said those things? In this world, you're going to have trouble. You might think that he was talking to, you know, a bunch of naughty kids. You know, you keep doing this, you're going to have trouble. You might think he's talking to his enemies. You mess with me, you'll have trouble. But he wasn't. He was talking to his closest friends. He said, I want you to have peace, and therefore I'm going to tell you the the reality. Christian life, the life of following Jesus, has joy, but there is trouble. He says, in this world you will have trouble. And in just a few hours or days after Jesus uttered those words, he was beaten um, to a pulp. He was ca- forced to carry a cross, which he couldn't even do. He was so weak. Uh, up the hill, he was, he was executed. They hung a sign above his head that said, here is the king of the Jews in three different languages. So anyone who was passing by would know This is the kind of trouble that comes to anyone who claims to be king. Anyone who wants to follow this guy, we know who you are. This is what waits you in this world. You will have trouble. And in that moment, you see the disciples, they had forgotten the very next part of Jesus' promise when he said, in this world you have trouble, because the very next phrase that comes after that, he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How do we know that they forgot? Well, if you know the story of Easter, the very first Easter morning, 
the, the, there was the women who went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices, and they did not find his body there, and they ran back to tell the disciples, to tell the men. And the men did not believe them because they forgot what Jesus had told them. They did not understand that Jesus came to conquer the world, not on the other side of trouble, not by avoiding trouble, but by walking through it. Jesus had said to his closest friends he wanted them to have peace, and he wants you to have peace. And so he prepared them for the trouble to come by reminding them of his overcoming power. He didn't say, now you have trouble, but in the future it's going to be better someday. He said, now, now you have trouble, and now, right now, in the present, in the midst of your trouble, I have overcome the world. I wonder if he had in his mind when he said those words, the opening lines of Psalm 46, which we're going to walk through. It was written a thousand years earlier. And the psalmist is singing because the psalms are songs. He's singing these words, God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've got this. I've overcome the world. That's the message of the text of Psalm 46. And we're going to look there tonight because you need to know that God is your refuge and help here and now so that you have peace in whatever trouble, big or small, that you might be facing. Whether it's self-inflicted trouble or trouble inflicted by others or trouble just by living in a broken world. So we're going to walk through Psalm 46. I want you to feel tonight in these words that God is here with you in your trouble. And I want you to believe that he will increase your joy in the trouble. Whether you get instant relief or relief comes many, many years in the future, he will increase your joy in the trouble. And know that he has rescued you from ultimate or eternal trouble. So let's start in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I don't know, many, maybe you've memorized that. I, I think I memorized that at some point. And I want to assure you that it's easier to memorize God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, than it is to actually believe that. Um, God is your refuge. He's my refuge. God and not my insurance policies. God and, and not your survival skills or your coping strategies. Not endless information. Not your genes. Not other people who can't do everything for you. You come to believe that God is your refuge when you need to find refuge. And if God is your refuge in trouble, then that makes you a refugee. Where does this image come from in the Bible? If you go back to the early days of God's people, to the book of Numbers, and the, God's people are about to come out of their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years and go into the promised land. And, and God tells Moses to make sure when you go and you parcel out the land that you set aside six cities of refuge. Places where if there was an accidental injury or death that was not intentional, 
and you, you caused it, but by accident, you could run to one of those places so that you could, there could be a fair trial, so there wasn't an instant retribution, an instant person coming to seek your life. God established that to prevent this endless cycle of retribution and revenge. It was a place of, of safety, a place of shelter, somewhere you could run. And we are people who are refugees. What is it that we are running from? What are we running from? What are you running from? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, thank you for coming and being a part of this gathering. And, and I want to say plainly to you that whether you understand it or not, if you're not a Christian, like Adam and Eve before you, and like every person who's ever lived, then you are running from God. That, that's what the Bible tells us, that you are running from your refuge. You're running away from that God, your refuge, to some other refuge that works for you. Maybe it's your career. Uh, maybe it's success, awards from working hard. Maybe it's just having a good time, making the most out of life before you die. Those are refuges that, refuges that we run to instead of running uh, to God. Maybe you like in the spirit of this age, we, our refuge is just to be true to myself. And I run to that when nothing else makes sense. You, you probably don't see that God is the one who sent his own son, Jesus, to become sin in your place, to forgive you and give you a new heart so that you can stop running and, and rest in him, the one who loves you. That's the promise of the gospel. If you're here tonight and you are a Christian, you're still on a journey. The burden of your sin was released at the cross. Jesus paid the full penalty for that sin. You have now a new heart and new desires, desires to run to God and not away from him. But the Bible tells Christians, tells us, that we still have to consciously, intentionally flee from sin, flee from sexual sin, flee from youthful lusts, Paul tells Timothy. So where do you run when you face temptation, when you face trouble? You know, God doesn't tell us, ask us to flee into an open paddock where we'd be easy prey for whatever's chasing us. He says, no, you come to me. You flee into my arms. I'm your refuge. I will protect you. He always loves. He always protects. He is always there, especially in trouble. The Psalms sing of God as a refuge more than 40 times. Why? Because in this world, you'll have trouble and you'll need refuge. The world that we live in is broken. It's under a curse. Your body will eventually give out and die. Satan is an enemy who's seeking to destroy you. Sin is still lurking at your door. Because of the gospel, you're no longer a slave to sin. But you can still be tempted to run to those other loves and habits. And let me tell you, God is your refuge, even when you fail. And here's more good news. The Psalms don't tell you that God will kind of parcel out little bits of strength that you can sort of power up when you need it. No, the Psalms tell us God is your strength. God, his person, he is your strength. And he will never fail. So let me ask you, friends, where do you go first when you're in trouble? What do you pray? Because how you answer those questions will tell you a lot about who you believe God is. Is he there? Is he there in your trouble? Is he able to help? Do you wait for him to act 
All throughout Scripture, we're told again and again that things happened. Jesus' death on the cross and lots of other less significant things, things happened so that people might know that God is God and that we need Him. That we might know how glorious He is, how good He is. And they're not just the good things that happened. If you have your Bible, again, you can look at Romans chapter 8, verse 20. It says this, Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation, everything, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him, that's God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is, what's Paul saying here? He says, when Adam and Eve sinned back in the garden, when the very first time they ran away from God rather than to God as their refuge, that the whole creation fell under a curse. And that every trouble that we face now is a result of that fall. Where once there was perfect peace and order and harmony, now there's upheaval, chaos, and competition. But these things aren't random. It says the one who subjected creation did this on purpose. The triune God is the one who said, cursed is the ground because of you. Why? Was he having some kind of divine temper tantrum in that moment? Was he flipping over the game board when things didn't go his way? No. He says he subjected the ground to futility in hope in hope that every, one day everything in creation will have joy together. It's not random. The troubles you face have purpose. If you, if you try to zoom in to a specific trouble, like, like maybe like Job did, or in, in, in your trouble, we, we don't often find specific answers. But better than seeking those kinds of specific answers, why, why this, why now, why me, we learn to seek God as our refuge and we, we run to Him, then you'll learn to hope in the God who is there. In this world, you will have trouble by design, but take heart, He's overcome the world. Verse 2, more imagery here in the psalm to describe the, the trouble we face. God is there. In your trouble, He's your refuge, He's able to help. And that's meant to lead us to a place to lead you to incredible peace. And then he says, therefore, therefore, because of this, because of the reality that God is refuge, that he is that mighty fortress around us, we will not fear, no matter what. I don't know if you can think back to what you were afraid of when you were young, or maybe what you're still afraid of now. Was it, you know, the dark, being the new kid, you know, Captain Feathersword? I don't know what you were afraid of when you were young. I grew up in the middle of America where occasionally we'd have tornadoes. I don't know if you've ever experienced one or seen it on the movies. Um, we lived in Tornado Alley. Every community around us had these big sirens, you know, in the middle. Of the, they, would, they would do a practice siren like once a month, and just every time I'd hear that noise, you'd just get nervous, even if it was a bright, sunny day. Mom and Dad, they were... Uh, they had a way of helping us in a way that a siren could. A siren could warn us, but Mom and Dad could help us. And uh, I remember one time very, very much, I was about 10, one time being down in the basement, you know, with like dad had taken a mattress off of a bed and literally put it on top of my sisters and myself and was laying on top of the mattress for like half an hour for the storm to pass. I, you know, that's a very impressionable thing to happen. He was at that moment our refuge from 500 kilometer an hour winds. 
you look at the raw power that's on display in verses two and three. You see an earthquake that's so powerful that mountains are literally crumbling and crashing into the ocean. There's a tidal wave, a tsunami that comes next, crashes up the very, against the very same mountain that's just been shaken uh, by the earthquake. The conditions here, these are, I would say, extreme conditions. Um, I have great respect for people who like to surf. I've tried a few times myself on those like, really big boards for kids, and I still can't do it. Um, but I love watching other people do it. Who are, who are really good and have great balance. And uh, let me tell you, I don't think even the most fearless surfer would go out in the conditions that are described here in verses two and three. The mountains are quaking from within because of the swell. And the, image, the imagery here is intentional. It, it, it's a reflection, almost an anti-reflection of Genesis chapter one. On the third day of creation, God separates the water from the land. He places a boundary of separation between them. And here, the image is that boundary being erased, the water and the land crashing into each other, order falling back into chaos. And yet, and yet, God is there. He's there. Don't fear. Even in in the chaos, trouble will come. The devil will tempt and accuse Affliction will interrupt at what seems like the worst possible time, and yet God is there. He's your refuge, your very present help in trouble. Let's go to verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There's a shift in the setting here. We go from the, watching the crashing waves there at the, at the seaside to the city on a hill, the city of God. It's probably a reference to Jerusalem, which was located on top of a hill, top of Mount Zion. The temple was there at the highest point in the center. It was the place of God's name, his holy habitation. It's where his glory was located there. Um, but what about this river in verse 4? Because I, I have had the privilege of being in Jerusalem, and I can tell you there is no river there. There is no river flowing through the city of Jerusalem. It's on top of a hill. The river here is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for God's blessing. You'll find the same imagery elsewhere. For example, in Psalm 36, verse 8, we read this. They, being the people of God, feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river, or some translation, the fountain of your delights. Water that brings delight. The only other liquid that the Bible talks about this way is booze, wine, Psalm 104. Wine brings joy to human hearts. Here in Psalm 46, it's just plain water from a stream that makes glad the city of God. Why? Because of the one who provides it. He is the source of all the delight. And because he delights to give good gifts to his children. And so when we receive it, we receive delight. We receive joy. Fast forward to the very last chapter of the Bible. You can turn there if you like, Revelation 22, and you see the very same river flowing through a city. Let me just read this quickly. It's Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. 
and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And see, we get, this is the future, new Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth, but we get glimpses of this now. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you know what Jesus, how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in several ways, but one of them is this way. He is like a fountain of what? A fountain of living water welling up from within you. It's the same river. It flows and it gets deeper as it goes, as you grow as a Christian. That water, the stream, it flows stronger and deeper. So no matter what trial you're facing now, this river of delights will get deeper and sweeter the closer you are to seeing Jesus face to face. One day you will die, and you will see him. And if you're a Christian, you'll reign with him forever. Curse will be gone, no more trouble, no more tears. Friends, he's already overcome the world at the cross. You can have joy now, and he will overcome the world so your joy can only get bigger. It can only increase as you get closer to seeing him. So let's come back to the here and now in verse 5. God is right now here with you, even in times of trouble, especially in times of trouble. In verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The city can't be moved. What does that mean? Does it mean that nothing bad will ever happen to God's people? The city can't be, it's, it's untouchable. It's not, what, it's not what it means. It's not what it means. Because in the very next phrase, it says God will help her when morning dawns. In other words, there's an assumption that there has been night and they are in need of help. So he's not saying that nothing bad will ever happen. Bad stuff has to be happening. God's people need help. So what is this unmovable city? This unmovable city is a picture of God's people who are holding on to him for refuge and not letting go even when everything is bleak. They might lose opportunities. They might lose their career. They might lose loved ones. But they won't be moved because they are holding on to God as refuge. My delight, your delight cannot be in your present circumstances. It has to be in God who never changes he says, morning will come. And when you get to get out of that bunker, get on, out from under the mattress and come out and take stock to see that he has been there the entire time. In verse six, the psalmist turns from chaos in creation to then chaos in human society. We see nations and governments and organizations, all these human power structures fighting against each other. And ultimately, according to Psalm two, they're fighting against Jesus, the anointed one. These kingdoms are on shaky foundations. They won't last. The only city that will never be moved is the city of God, the one whose foundation is built on the cornerstone of faith, simple, sometimes wavering faith in a never-wavering Jesus. So much of the idolatry that you and I are subject to would be destroyed if we understood this. All the kingdoms and the treasures of the earth that we have stock in. You know, one day, Australia, as we know it, may no longer exist as a, as a free and open and peaceful society. I hope that's not the case. We pray that's not the case. But 
there, there, there's no guarantee. That's Australia, this world, the things you have, none of these things can last. I, I spent um, about seven years with my family living in East Asia. It's good to hear about West Asia. I lived in East Asia. Um, They're mentoring young Christian leaders who could not be pastors, or they were pastors, they just couldn't be pastors openly. Um, in the last couple of years, many of those leaders have been, if you like, snuffed out. Um, they've lost contracts, jobs, homes. I know one large church that uh, have about 2,000 people, the very next Sunday they lost their venue. And uh, you, you, would, you go to the local park nearby and, and see just small groups of men and women worshiping there in, in, in smaller groups so they can't really be um, rounded up in one lot. This is the reality for many of our brothers and sisters around the world today, and, and they are, they're moved out of their venue. Oh, yeah, but they are not moved because their faith in Jesus is that strong. He's actually increasing their joy in the midst of, yeah, it's inconvenient. It's frustrating. It's expensive. But, man, their joy is just getting more and more. Look at verses 11, 7 and 11. This is the refrain, the chorus of the song, if you like. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of, of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is another way of saying he's the commander of the armies of heaven. He doesn't simply lead his people in battle, but he surrounds them. He's your safe place. When he's in our midst and we are in him, there's no scheme of the enemy that will consume us. Uh, the, you, you might recognize some of the imagery in this psalm um, shows up in one of the most famous hymns of the church, and that's Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. This was... They say Martin Luther's favorite psalm, Psalm 46. And so he takes the imagery from there. And the third verse of A Mighty Fortress says these words. It says, and though this world with devils filled or with trouble filled, devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Uh, that, that is the anthem of, uh, of brothers and sisters in Jesus who, is just, who are holding on to him for dear life. And their joy just overflows God's already decided the outcome. You don't have to fear. You belong to him. You might walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but God is with you, and he will increase your joy because that's what God does. He makes us glad. He lets us drink from the fountain of delights. He gives you a reason to sing. Verse 8, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease at the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is there in trouble. God takes away your fear and increases your joy in trouble. And now here, verse 8, God will rescue his people from trouble forever. Here's this direct plea, verse 8. Come and look. Come and behold the works of the Lord. See what he's done. It's like Christmas morning. And instead of looking under the Christmas tree, he takes us up on the walls around the city. You know, old cities used to have walls of protection around them. And they would have soldiers that would walk, you know, do laps around the city to look out and see if there are any enemies or armies approaching. And they took, so they would give warning to the people. He takes us up on the wall, and we look out, expecting to see in our trouble just 
enemy after enemy that's coming. And all that we see there in verse 8, as far as you can see, are dead bodies. Just absolute defeat. God has won a total victory in this final stanza of the song. That is the future that we look forward to. The works of God that he wants you and I to behold here are both terrifying acts of judgment, he calls them desolations in verse 8, but also definitive acts of redemption. Verse 9, he puts a stop to war. He destroys weapons of war. In short, God, you know, unlike earthly rulers, earthly powers, he has total control and power. He's completely sovereign. Not only over his own people, the people inside the walls, but also the people outside the walls. Same thing is true today. Whether or not any people group or government in the world knows it, God is ruling and reigning over them. God is there with him. He's meeting out common grace as he sees fit, lifting up rulers, bringing them down, allowing some cultures to flourish while others languish for a time. All so that people from everywhere would reach out, as Paul says in Acts 17, reach out and find the God who is there. Look at verse 10. This is maybe the most well-known verse in the psalm. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Uh, Many translations put quotation marks around these words showing that these words are not the words of the psalmist, but they're the direct speech of God himself. He is talking to you, saying, guys, look, look what I've done, look what I can do, look what I have done, look what I will do. Relax, rest, be still. Stop running to other refuge for protection. I've got you. I am God alone, and I am in control. Not just the laws of nature, not just the wealth of nations. You don't have to look to those things. You can look to me. I will be exalted in the earth that I created out of the chaos. Just be still and know that I am God. I will win. I will be exalted. I will be made great in all the earth, even among the nations that hate me. And that is good news for you. This verse, be still and know. It's, it's not just a verse that you can recite when you're having a bad day, although you can. It's so much more than that. I think it's important for us to remember that God is at work in the minor details of our lives. But we can see the bigger picture here, can't we? That's what this psalm does for us. Let me, let me just do about 60 seconds of biblical theology. After Adam and Eve sinned, God inaugurated a plan to save people, to rescue a people for himself, to be with him and enjoy his blessings forever. And despite the overwhelming wickedness of humanity, by grace, he chose one man, Abraham. He blessed him and said, you will be a blessing that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham had a son in his old age who had a son, who had descendants, who eventually gave birth to Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus is the one who would fulfill that promise that all nations would be blessed through him, through this one family. And how did he do that? Well, we find the answer to that question in John chapter 12, verse 32. It's 
the words of Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus said this. He said, and he's talking about the cross here. He said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus, his body was lifted up from the earth by wicked men who nailed his body to a cross. He willingly submitted to a humiliating death that was itself foreshadowing the lifting up, the exaltation that was to come. Because he was lifted up on the cross, therefore, Paul says, God also exalted him. He highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every family on earth blessed through one man, Jesus. He says, get up, get up on the balcony, get up on the walls and look at the works of God. Come and behold, be still and know that he is God. He has been, he is, he will be lifted up in the eyes of the nations and in your trouble. He will be exalted in all the earth. This verse isn't just to pick me up on a bad day. It's a battle cry. It's the gospel. God is who he says he is. And he will do what he says he will do. And every eye will see it. Every knee will bow before Jesus, some of them as his enemies in submission, some of them as his subjects in worship and adoration. Be still and know that he is God. He is with you in your trouble. He increases your joy in your trouble. And because of the cross of Jesus, he has rescued you from ultimate trouble. He's adopted you as his child. And see, now you have a testimony. You have a message. That because of the obedience of Jesus, anyone who believes in him will be forgiven. No longer enemies, no longer slaves, but sons. And here we are, we're standing on the wall. We see it. We've seen it. We know the gospel. And we can keep shouting back down to the people in the city or we can walk down and, 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 and talk about it amongst ourselves. Or we could shout that message of reconciliation to the people who are outside the walls because they need it too. Those who don't know anything about God, they have no access to grace, no awareness of their fate outside of Jesus. Be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted. It's not a message just to stencil in my diary. It's an announcement to share far and wide. People of God, be still. Enemies of God, be still and know that he is God. Know that Jesus, the Son of God, was exalted on a cross outside a city just as the Scripture said he would be. His blood, just like the waters of the river that flow through the city of God, is for the healing of the nations. For all who believe in his name. See, now, today, now is the time to turn to him and be rescued from every trouble. Why don't we pray as the band comes up? 
Father, you know the trouble that we face. Specifically, you know the troubles that are faced by every person in this room. Lord, you are a refuge and our help, a present help in trouble. Stir our hearts tonight and help us meditate on your word. If anyone here is not trusted in you, please draw that person to yourself through Jesus today. Be a refuge from all trouble, a present help. Show them the love that compelled you to give the life of your son on the cross so that their sins might be forgiven and so they might be reconciled to you forever. And for those of us who belong to you, may it be that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Jesus, be our mighty fortress today. Would you welcome us into your refuge, into your fortress by your grace? May we not be found outside when the day comes. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.